Greetings. Welcome to The Dividing Line. It is a Friday. We're taking four calls right off the top of the program today. Plan to uh, get done in uh, no more than 90 minutes, maybe a little bit shorter than that. I'm going to be joining uh, Chris Arnzen on Iron Sharpens Iron uh, this afternoon, 4 o'clock Eastern uh, Daylight Time. So uh, that's why we're doing it early today, so I can uh, multitask, in essence, and uh, be on with uh, Chris. So uh, if you uh, haven't been listening to Iron Sharpens Iron, uh, you want to look them up, and uh, we'll be doing two hours uh, on the program today. So let's uh, get to our phone callers uh, who are obviously all on Twitter. Uh, well, one maybe not, but uh, the rest of them are on Twitter, and that's how they got in. Uh, you might say, well, that's not fair. Um, well, if you think that's not fair, there's a parable Jesus told about the people hired to, to do work that you need to go read. And <laughs> just, just go with that. So, uh, Okay, let's uh, talk to Aaron in Washington. Hi, Aaron. Howdy, Dr. White. This is, uh, well, I'm actually, I actually live in Moscow and go to Doug Wilson's church. So, oh, okay. Um, howdy from the Moscow crew. All right. Um, <clears throat> and thanks again for all your work, you and Rich both. Um, just wanted to ask, so I've um, been listening to a lot of um, intertextuality material between Old and New Testament, and the discussion came up about um, the Jewish view of original sin and all of that kind of thing and how um, the person speaking didn't believe the federal headship was a fit because of the um, so it's transgression came through one to spread to all men so that you know the redemption of one um, redeems all men and really it was just I guess my under, my question is am I to understand that um, I mean I believe that federal headship is correct but what I'm trying to figure out is how does that exempt how does Jesus come out with a perfectly clean human nature is that what the is that what the virgin birth is supposed to kind of get around it's pretty does important that, does that guilt of adam come through the male line and that's why the virgin birth through mary is allows jesus to be perfect uh, well that's certainly that's certainly traditionally how it's been understood um uh, there is obviously that very um uh, unusual aspect of the lord's nature and many people have uh, understood that. I mean, that's not Paul's point in Romans 5, though, by paralleling Jesus with Adam, Adam certainly did not have um, a standard parentage either. So maybe that's where the, maybe that's where the parallel is. Um, but there's no question that, uh, that the teaching in Romans chapter 5 is there's two humanities, one in Adam, one in Christ. In one you have death, and one you have life. Uh, if you everybody's in the one, but only certain people are in in the other, and that's the key issue of justification by faith and the covenant community and everything else. Um, now, as to what Jews believed prior to Paul, well, uh, the Jews believed a lot of things prior to Paul, and uh, you can the the intertestamental literature is extremely broad, and there's there's all sorts of things you can find in intertestamental literature. Uh, I understand, for example, I, I'm, I may take the time to listen to it, that uh, uh, there's a new book out by Michael Heiser on demons uh, that is uh, a good example of when you take intertestamental literature as really extremely in, uh, central to your interpretation of, of both the Old and New Testaments. Um, 
but be that as it may, the the point is there. It's it's a multifaceted um, body of literature. We don't have, we don't obviously have an exhaustive. Uh, record of what those people believed, but what we do, what has survived to our day, uh, illustrates many different streams of, of tradition and understanding. And while those are interesting for us to be able to understand the disputes that were going on between Pharisees and Sadducees and uh, where the Essenes may have come from and all the rest of that kind of stuff, um, it can't be made an interpretive lens that limits what you what the New Testament apostles can teach, and so I don't know how anybody would would know what quote unquote the Jews. Whenever whenever somebody says, "Well, the Jews believed," I know that I'm talking to somebody that really doesn't know what they're talking about because um, there are and anyone who reads that literature goes well. This rabbi said this, and that rabbi said that, and we're not exactly sure what that rabbi meant by that, but then there was this guy over here. Uh, those are the people that have actually read that literature and recognized that to go, well, the Jews believed means you've probably got, you know, a, a right. horse in this race, a dog in this race, or everybody put it. You, you, you're probably trying to find some way of promoting a particular perspective. So... Uh, it, it Could is, I ask a clarifying just to drill down on the on verse nineteen of Romans five? Uh-huh. The uh, kathistemi, I believe, is the word in Greek is uh, made or constituted. For the one were made sinners, um, uh-huh. many were made righteous. Is that like a declarative, or is that maybe like a forensic sense, or? Um, because what I'm trying to understand is how. Because oh, yeah. it says earlier that that the transgression of Adam. That the transgressions that came after Adam were not like the transgression of Adam, and so I'm just kind of trying to figure out in what way are they made sinners by Adam's uh, act? Yeah, well, for as through the one man's disobedience, um, hoi polloi. You've probably heard you've probably heard that phrase before. The hoi polloi, uh, the other the other folks. Well, that's what it is here. It's hoi polloi, um, hoi polloi hamar toloi. The 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 many were. Constituted, made. It's kathistami. Um, uh, you can. It, it's. It's a very, very old. All the histami verbs are very, very old verbs. Uh, that's why anyone who learns Greek hates them because they, they don't fit into the nice, neat categories of later verbs. But um, the through the uh, disobedience of the one man, sinners. The many were made in the same way also through, using the same preposition, dia, the obedience of the one, and some uh, some manuscripts, I would imagine, I'm, I'm just guessing here, but yeah, uh, the, some manuscripts put, put man, but simply the one um, righteous, and that's put in direct parallel to Hamar Toiloi, um, righteous, same term, uh, hoi polloi. So you you have two hoi polloi's. Uh, one is constituted as sinners. One is constituted as righteous. And very much um, the only way to understand this is within the law court concept that recognizes federal headship. So did you? Is there not clear examples of this uh, with the sin of Achan and uh, things that were in the very founding of the of the nation of uh, of, of Israel you have uh, 
federal headship being acted out uh, in the very actions of uh, the the nation suffering for the actions of the king or or situation with Aiken at AI and, and, and examples like that. So I'm not sure how, you know, obviously there were Jews prior to the days of Jesus who were very influenced by other things outside of Scripture, um, and maybe they would have developed different understandings, that more of a secularized understanding, especially Greek philosophy. Uh, there are Jewish writers, Philo and others, that were deeply influenced by forms of Greek philosophy, too, that might not like that covenantal type of, uh, of, of thinking. Um, but certainly Paul is not out in, in the boonies someplace. He's not... He's not uh, some strange, no one's ever heard of that idea before in his argumentation. Uh, but, but yeah, there was, there was lots of different perspectives uh, that would have been represented, and I would imagine that the debates that Paul had in, uh, in the synagogues would have uh, been focused upon things like that um, as to exactly where in the midst of those traditions uh, that understanding was falling. So... Well, uh, just to just to tie the two pieces of the question together, because you, you kind of pointed out the connection. The the argument originally was is that Romans five twelve doesn't say that guilt is imputed to all of humanity, just sin or sorry, just death. Uh, it comes to all humanity after that. And I was kind of rationalizing in my mind that well, five nineteen only makes sense if it's federal headship that's in view here, because you can't have somebody constituted legally as being, you know, declared a sinner. Right. And so um, it was just kind of referring to the tripartite fall of the Old Testament, Genesis 3, 6, and uh, Babel. So yeah. anyway, thank you yeah, for the help. You know, really what, helped yeah, you, gotta, you have to, to remember that if, if someone doesn't like, if someone has a tradition and therefore there is a passage of Scripture they don't like, they are, they, there will be ways to spin things. <laughs> and uh, the, in the final analysis, the best way to determine if someone is engaging in meaningful exegesis is to test the consistency of their hermeneutics across their, all of their theology, but especially in those areas where it gets tough. There, there, are, tough, there are tough passages of scriptures. No one's going to say that Romans 5, 12 through 19 is, is an easy text. Um, but are, is, the, is the person really wanting to let the apostle define things, or do they have an external idea that they are really trying to make sure doesn't get wrecked? by what the Apostle is saying, and therefore uh, they'll use one way of understanding verse 12 that, that, that ends up disconnecting verse 19. As, you're, as you notice, the only way to really hold it together is to see it all as a, as a consistent reality. And once you lose that, you sort of lose the whole, the whole, the whole shooting match, as, uh, as us old folks used to say. So, all right, Aaron, thanks for your phone call. Thank you. Blessings to you and yours. All right, God bless. Bye-bye. All right, let's uh, go to uh, Anthony in New Jersey. Hi, Anthony. Hello, Dr. White. How are you? Doing good. Um, this is my second time calling. I just quickly want to say that Rich has been nothing but pleasant every time that well, I've called now. He's like a nice guy. We're very, we're, very, we're, uh, we're very thankful that even though the Chinese are in control of the drug supply, uh, we have been able to get a, a consistent... Uh, flow of uh, whatever we have rich on to make him nice to people. So uh, that's been... <laughs> perfect, perfect. Um, 
So my, my question is uh, centered around the, the Garden of Gethsemane, um, because, you know, out here in New Jersey, we have a kind of, you know, take your pick of heresy. We just have so many different types of heretical camps out here from the Hebrew Israelites to... Um, Hebrew Israelites, the, they're, they're, they're just like Reformed Baptists, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, just, just the small differences. Small, very but, uh, small. <laughs> when it comes to the oneness, uh, theology. Um, I'm curious, first of all, if looking at the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus says, not my will, your will be done, is a uh, a proper example of differentiating personhoods between Christ and the Father. And also, if it is a good example, then do we see some sort of division of will between Jesus and the Father? Does that make sense? Well, yeah. So, um, what what has to be remembered when you're when you're t- when you're talking about Jesus, your 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 and and the relationship of the Father, and then introducing the issue of will, things get very 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 complicated because this is where two um, unique realities of divine revelation intersect. What I mean by that is. The doctrine of the Trinity, there is nothing in the created order to which you can compare it because only God exists in this fashion. Only God's being uh, is unlimited uh, and hence could be shared by three persons. Um, therefore, there's, there's nothing you can compare that to in, in the created order. But then the incarnate one is likewise unique because there's, there's only been one incarnation and there has only been one uh, hypostatic union, and the uh, requirements for Jesus to function as the proper sin-bearer for the people of God are very specific. And so it's those two that we're asking about here when in the garden Jesus says, my, not my will, but, but yours be done. Because there is, in a sense, the one will of God, the, the perfect uh, consistency of Father, Son, and Spirit um, in the accomplishment of uh, all divine actions. There can be no disunity in the Godhead, uh, all, all these things, in talking about the one divine will. But Jesus is one person with two natures, and so he is a true human being as well, and therefore, uh, to avoid the error of Apollinarianism, uh, which certain uh, well-known Christian apologists have actually fallen into, uh, that I won't name, but you can just look it up, uh, he calls it Neo-Apollinarianism, but anyways, um, uh, to avoid that idea where the human nature of Christ basically becomes just a, a a physical manifestation rather than a true human nature, which is interesting in light of the last call. In fact, I was going to do this, Rich, but write, write down the call topics so that we're not sitting here at the end of the program going, what it is about? I don't remember what they're about. So Romans 5, and not my will but yours, Bonson Sproul, and LDS slash precept. So do a screenshot, do something, and that way we can remember. It's weird. We sit here at the end of the program and we just got done with the program. Then we sit there looking at each other going, 
So what were those calls about? I don't remember. It's really <laughs> weird. It's very, very strange. And I, I I think it's always sort of been that way. So Well, yeah, we can't exactly blame it on the short-term memory thing because we were doing it when we were going. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole point. I don't know why it works that way. I, I want to blame it on the gray hair and the bald head, but it's always been that way. So anyways, write these down. But it's interesting because there is an interface between this and what the last question was, is because how can Jesus be the proper second Adam, the the, the obedient uh, man over against the disobedient uh, uh, Adam, if if his humanity was not real or was only partial. And so a human being has a will. Um, and so that's what is being... When, once you have the expression of the incarnate one speaking in the context of what he is going to do in the incarnate state, then that's what you're looking at in the garden. That's a incredibly unique um, situation in all of history. It, it had never happened before, the incarnation, and we only have, uh, we only have John 17 and John 11... Uh, we, we just don't, maybe the baptism briefly, the transfiguration, maybe I'm just thinking of, of, of times when there's communication between father and son. We don't have very much in the divine revelation that could put us into a context where we can see this unique relationship uh, going on. And, and really, when you think about it, it's a tremendous, um, uh, really a tremendous privilege to, uh, to, to, to get to hear uh, two of the divine persons in the Godhead speaking to one another. Uh, but this happens within the context of the incarnation. And so, so this is the Son um, speaking to the Father, but in the incarnate state. And so the Son has a divine, has a, uh, uh, divine nature, but the will that's being spoken of here is the will that submits to that of the Father. Um, and so we have to be careful. It's it's really easy to um, get our systematic theologies out and read it back into a text when that may not have been exactly what the original author had in mind. Um, but in this context, what is being said in, for example, Luke chapter 22, verse 42, um, is plainly uh, the man Jesus speaking not of fear of death. This, I think it's important we need to we need to recognize this. He's not speaking about fear of death. He's speaking about being made sin in behalf of of his people. Mm. And that there there are many men who have gone to their deaths with with great bravery and and Jesus certainly could have done that as well. Yeah. Uh, but no one has existed in perfect purity and yet then is made sin for us. That that Again, the cross is the center point of history, absolutely unique. Uh, as I was reviewing that LD, uh, the um, Islamic video a couple days ago, uh, same, same issue there. We're, we're talking about one of the most amazing uh, ideas that has ever entered into the, the heart of man, uh, and it came from the divine revelation. So that's how I would understand uh, that. Uh, it does indicate that clearly this is not... The fa- this is not an internal conversation within Jesus. 
uh, which is which is what you have in oneness theology. That I've said many many times that that oneness theology, and they know this. If you listen to them talking to themselves, uh, I think the leaders today know that their responses, David Bernard and others, their responses on the prayer life of Jesus are wishful thinking. I think they I think in their more honest moments, alone in the car and the walk in the woods, whatever it might be, um, mm. they're like, man, that really doesn't work. <laughs> that just doesn't that just really <laughs> yeah, it's stinks. It's yeah, it's 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 tough. So um and unfortunately a lot of a lot of evangelicals don't know the doctrine of the Trinity well enough to recognize that that's the real issue with oneness is the evidence of the personhood of the Son and the reality that the Son as a divine person pre-existed the Incarnation, uh, most evangelicals wouldn't just don't know where to go, and that's why they're, we don't make a lot of inroads there. Yeah, so, so you would just say that this is a pretty solid like, example of two persons? Well, two persons okay. in the sense of the incarnate person speaking to the divine person, they would argue that this is an internal conversation. I'm right. thinking. I'm thinking within the doctrine of the Trinity. This is in in light of the pre, the preceding portion of the verse. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That's the Son as human being, focusing upon okay. what's coming, and expressing to the Father the the inexpr- really the inexpressible dread of being made sin for his people. We can't even, I don't think we can, we sing songs about it. We really can't begin to understand what exactly that meant. Um, So I wouldn't use it as an indication of the eternal existence of the Son, because even from the oneness perspective, they say, yeah, but he's incarnate right now, even from your perspective, that's true. But I would challenge the necessity on the part of the oneness person of saying this is actually an internal conversation where Jesus is having, where where the human side of Jesus is hoping the divine side of Jesus will find a way out of this. I mean, because that's literally what you have. Instead of what is really going on, and that is a, the deep expression on the part of Jesus. And it is important, I think, to notice, Jesus knows what's coming. Uh, when we, when, when, if if you adopt what is taught in most seminaries today, um, Jesus didn't know what was coming, and was was shocked at it. Um, all this becomes gibberish. We're wasting our time. Uh, so if you if you went to Union Theological Seminary, all this is gibberish uh, because they they don't have a foundation there for even understanding it. So. It is important to recognize that when we're doing apologetics with oneness folks, we are doing apologetics at a much higher level. There, there's actually a lot of assumed stuff that lays the foundation of talking to oneness folks. Um, we can't have a conversation with oneness folks. Um, that's a conversation worth having because they have as high a view of Scripture as we do. Um. Right. Oneness cannot exist within liberalism. Oneness collapses as soon as liberalism enters in. That's why they are so absolutely. Well, you look at the UPCI. 
you know, long dresses and head coverings. Uh, there's right. a there's a reason for that because they recognize as soon as any type of diminishment of uh, old standards comes in, it all falls apart. Uh, the, the, there's the, there's no backup uh, for them. So. So yeah, I think that's what's going on in uh, in Luke uh, twenty two forty two. If that's the text you're looking at, it's the primary one. Um, Great, thank you. Okay, thanks for your call today. All right, God bless. All right, God bless. Bye bye. I went long on that. Sorry about that, Matt and Jacob. Uh, let's talk to Matt. Hi, Matt. Uh, oh man, Matt. Uh, boy, Matt and Jacob are both in California. Let us stop the program right now. Have a word of prayer for our brothers who are under communist control. Um, help. So. <laughs> help us. Help. Help. <laughs> Hi, Dr. White. Uh, so, so, Matt, how long is your hair now? <laughs> <laughs> I cut it myself uh, oh, no. not long ago. Oh, yeah. no. Well, I, got a, I cut I my got a bowl cut. I cut my hair uh, myself uh, every morning in the shower, so <laughs> I would just... <laughs> Rich cut his, too, and it's, it's yeah. horrific. It really is. I've, I've managed yeah. not to laugh, but it's okay. Well, um, I'm also the one caller who didn't get in through Twitter, so um, it's kind of not fair, and I've borne the heat of the day, and uh, oh, I, I, I see. need okay. more than a denarius. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, <clears throat> uh, I think you didn't read that parable closely enough, but we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. Uh, so my, my question then, um, I, I, really what prompted my question was the, uh, the program that you had with Dr. Jason Lyle. Mm-hmm. Um, about presuppositional apologetics, and man, I've really appreciated his work, and I've appreciated Bonson's work, and um, <clears throat> so I've I've sort of grown up on Sproul, mm-hmm. and it was hard for me to disagree with Sproul on apologetics, and but uh, I ended up having to do it. Uh, so you got to remember when you're talking to RC that RC doesn't uh, mind if you disagree with him at all. You know what's wrong with you people only works for some people. Well, now now you've got me down a rabbit trail because um, you you said once I think uh, as far as like why why did Sproul not see the uh, the truth of presuppositional apologetics, and you said once it may have been his uh, his love for Aquinas. Oh, he loved but, Thomas. Yeah, he loved Thomas. Yeah, but uh, Bonson Bonson in one of his programs said that that actually it was his uh you know gerstner was uh classical and yeah gerstner had some fallout with uh van till once and it just it became something where where if sproul started moving toward presuppositional apologetics it would be sort of a backhanded yeah um thing well, i'm sure uh, i'm sure gerstner. i'm sure there were multiple i'm sure there were multiple reasons um i did not have uh the 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 couple of times that i had rc's ear personally um uh, we uh, went on a uh, cruise in Hawaii. It was it was G. James Kennedy's cruise. He had that terrible heart attack, um, and they asked me and R.C. Uh, to take his place on this. Uh, probably more, much more R.C. than me, but on this uh, cruise. And so I got to spend some time with R.C. This was after his stroke, um, but he was still in real good spirits and and fresh of mind, um, and. Unfortunately, most of the conversations were on issues having to do with like federal visionism and a few things like that. We didn't have uh, a whole lot of time to discuss this particular uh, area. And uh, in, in hindsight, I wish I wish we had. But yeah, obviously you are if, if you've if there's someone who has been a particular mentor to you, um, you are 
you are, it, it's just natural that you are going to not only uh, adopt their their viewpoints, but even when you differ, you're going to try to differ in a very respectful way, and maybe in a muted fashion, if if need be. And I don't think there's anything really wrong with that. Um, so you know, this is this is an issue where I, I listened to the Bonds of Sproul debate probably 20 years ago. I have not listened since then. I should. But I'm really busy, <laughs> so so. Yeah. Um, uh, it, but it, what I appreciated was it was collegial, it was focused. I thought it was really useful. I would recommend it to people uh, to to consider what the real issues are, what the fundamental issues are, and obviously, from my perspective, it wasn't an issue that required. Um, laying down fire and 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 digging uh, trenches and, oh, right. and doing all the rest of that kind of stuff, um, which unfortunately happens a lot in uh, social media on these issues. Um, yeah, they were really respectful, and I uh, uh, even though now I'm a flaming presuppositionalist, um, <laughs> I still uh, really respectful towards Sproul. And oh, I'm, sure. Um, but anyway, here I, I have a question about that debate, and um, and I know you haven't listen to it for 20 years, yeah. but maybe some of the topics you're fam- you're really uh, familiar with presuppositional apologetics. So Sproul, Sproul had mentioned that uh, Calvin talked about the difference between immediate revelation and immediate revelation. Okay. And I think, I think the idea there is that, you know, the law of God written on your heart, right? There's, there's some immediate revelation where you don't have to God doesn't reveal himself to you through the means of some mediation. There's a sense in which, the, the, you know, the law of God is written on your heart. It, it doesn't require your eyeballs or, or whatever, right? Right. But then, but then the immediate revelation would be God revealing himself through the things that were created and, and a recognition that, um, you know, you look up at the starry host and know that, that you know, the divine, something of the divine, right, uh, from like Romans one, but bon- uh, Bonson seemed to have a, pro- a problem with that. He said it, it seemed like he wasn't willing to admit that there was immediate revelation and immediate. Well, revelation. because that, that sounds like the, the way that you've described it sounds like a division of one aspect of revelation, which is considered general revelation, um, and so it, it seems like that is a that is an attempt to make a division uh, regarding what gets through. So, so in Romans one, uh, it is interesting, and 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 this may have something to 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 do with that. But when I normally when I are are translate when I'm translating this uh, section. And it says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now, what has been made there uh, is twice poiemason. So, are we a part of that, or is that just the external uh, creation? For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God would give thanks, became futile in their speculation, for his heart was darkened. Uh, exchange glory, the incorruptible God, so on and so forth. Um, so when it when it says, uh, I, actually it's verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. 
when it when it says in them it's en autois, which can be can be translated amongst them or in them. So the the from one eighteen and following, when you when you look at what's being said, I always say when we look outward we see it, when we look inward we see it. It sounds like what Sproul was saying there was looking at those two and making them separate categories, immediate and mediate. And maybe that's what Bonson was, again, it's been 20 years, but maybe that's what Bonson was uncomfortable doing, is dividing the one revelation that that in verse 19 says, for God manifested it autois to them. So it's it's God's manifestation, it's his intention that it function to communicate this information because uh, that's what leaves them, what's the last word of verse 20, unapologetus, without, without an excuse. So maybe there was, maybe there was something, I, 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 I do have it on the list of things I want to get back to, but I got people sending me books, and I, it's just uh, and the Wilson stuffs keep me busy. But I do want to get back to it um, and listen to it again because you're not the first person who's asked with a, que- a call with a question about it. Um, but I, I'm wondering if maybe Bonson was either preempting a direction he thought Sproul might go, or was sensing that Sproul was going to, in some way, insist that by dividing what general revelation actually accomplishes that he was opening up some type of a role for natural theology or something along those lines. I, 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 don't, I don't know. But whatever the last phrase of verse 19, for God manifested to them, means, it results in the fact they're unapologetus in verse 20. And, yeah, and <clears throat> so, yeah, so listening to that debate, and I've listened to it a bunch of times, and actually an uh, interesting uh, thing is that uh, the church that I belong to, we had a, a visit from uh, Vern Poitras, and I was at, we were able to sit down and speak to him and speak to his wife, who was a student of R.C. Sproul's. And uh, she, you know, Vern Poitras is a presuppositionalist, and she was really saying uh, that Sproul, underneath a lot of it, was presuppositionalist at heart. Um, and um, during the debate... Well, we know he's Sproul a presuppositionalist goes, now. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so uh, Sproul during the debate was was uh, acknowledging that uh, even you know the the distinction between mediate and immediate that it all gets through yeah. right because God gets it through and and the problem is that the, the it's a suppression of what has gotten through and then he goes on a tear and he says things that the presuppositionalists would just delight to listen to. And, and Bonson even comments, he says, I'm just so happy to hear you say all these oh, yeah, things that yeah. are so wonderfully presuppositional. And I think at that point, R.C. recognized, hang on, I think I'm getting too close. I need to make sure I'm not <laughs> betraying, uh, you know, Gerstner. And, uh, and, and he dialed back and started you know, he started making it more debatey, but they were really close. They were they were closer than than a lot oh, of yeah, yeah. new classical folks are to uh, to presuppositionalists. I mean, well, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm convinced. Uh, you know, 
say say what you will. When when I read the first uh, the first book of the Institutes, man, that sounds presuppositional to me. That's a, that's about as as clear as 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 it can be. I it, it just seems so consistent. I'm not trying to read that back into Calvin in the sense that he's not living in the same context and not surrounded by secularists and things like that. But yeah. I think if he were, that's how he would respond. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, yeah, most most definitely. Well, hey, Great. Matt, well, um, I, I hope that by uh, 2022 uh, you, can, you can leave your house again over there in California. Um, if you can uh, find, you know, get government uh, approval or something like that, I'd, I'd pack some clothes. And once you get across the border, it's good. Um, so just, just so you know. Uh, but please do not bring the 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 voting that people do in California with you over here to Arizona. It's it's ruining our state. It really it really, no. really is. Yeah, they'll never catch me alive. I'm already I'm, I'm already out. Uh, <laughs> they they can come and get me. No, just kidding. <laughs> All well, right, Matt. Good talking to you. Thank All right, you. thanks a lot. All right, good us. Bye bye. Bye bye. I'm sorry. What was that, Rich? The razor ribbon at the border. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not really sure that we we have that up there. So, all right. Poor Jacob, also in California, has been waiting for 43 minutes. Uh, Jacob, uh, thank you for. Hey, you've got nothing better to do. You live in California, uh, or are you? That's right. That's right. Are you uh, an essential worker? I, I technically am. I farm almonds, so farming is considered essential here. Well, I thank you very much for continuing to grow food. Uh, we sort of need yeah. it, and so does everybody else in the world. Um, uh, but let's not talk about that. Uh, what can we do for you? So I just got done last month reading uh, Always Ready by Bonson and uh, the first volume of Antonising Fathers, and it got me thinking. I called a couple weeks ago about uh, LDS apologetics, and how, how does presuppositional apologetics fit in with apologetics towards people who already believe there is a God and a right. basis for morality and all those things. Right. Yeah, that's a very, very common question, um, and there are—you you get slightly different answers depending, in my experience, on the experience of the apologists in dealing with people from other religions. Um, one of the uh, most common questions is, well, how would you apply presuppositionalism to the conflict with Islam because because you're asking about Mormonism, but Mormonism is a polytheistic religion, and it's pretty obvious that you have to be able to deal with that there can be no transcendental uh, proof of God within Mormonism, obviously. Uh, because there is no God who's the actual ground of, of all being. And so it's pretty easy to see how you could apply uh, the internal critique uh, of the system. And in fact, most Christians, even strongly anti-presuppositional Christians, will sort of, um, by nature, get very presuppositional with Mormons, because they recognize mm. that the the view of God that they are presenting is so radically different that you can't have a meaningful conversation about who Jesus is or what salvation is or anything else because they don't have a God who created all things. <laughs> they, their, their God once lived on another planet, and he had a God before him and a God before him. And, and so there are so many foundation foundational ontological questions that that can't be answered that there's no way to ground holiness or or grace or anything 
in a an exalted man from another planet. It's just it's just not possible. And so uh, it's sort of people just sort of naturally start going presuppositional at that point by saying, well, they start providing that internal critique of the system, saying your your system doesn't make any sense. You can't have a you can't have an increasing number of gods. When you go backwards in time, you got to get back to the first God. And what was he before he was a God? Well, according to you, he's a man. So now you get a man without a God. And it, it just doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Oh. So normally it's Islam that is, that is posited as the real challenge because Islam has a singular God uh, who creates all things. Everything that exists flows from his will. And so, uh, you know, it's it's easy enough to say, well, you still provide the internal critique, and so on a on a transcendental level. Um, well, I'll I'll I'll, I'll mention this. Um, I was really really interested. I don't know. It was about four years ago. Um, uh, a friend of mine who is a Muslim uh, has been very kind to join me when I was teaching at various seminaries. Um, joined me via Skype. Uh, since he lives on the other side of the planet, he normally is up at like three o'clock in the morning to do that, or one o'clock. I forget which one it was, hiding in a closet. But um, uh, he's joined my classes to talk with uh, my students, and one of my students asked a question uh, about the issue of love because if, if you've heard people talking with with Muslims, one of the questions they'll ask is, "Well, how how can you understand the nature of love within a radical monad?" Uh, Unitarian concept. How can God be love uh, eternally if there is no object of love uh, prior to the creation itself? And um, I was really taken aback when my Muslim friend said, you know, when I first started doing all this, most of us just laughed that question off. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized I'm not sure we've got a good answer for that. And that's one of the reasons I love this guy is because he's he, he listens um, many of my Muslim friends don't listen. Uh, he does, he reads, he listens, he thinks, and I owe him an email right now too. Um, so if he's listening, I'll, I'll get to you. Uh, I'm just behind and stuff. Um, but, uh, that is, that is one of the questions, um, is, uh, if, if you were to sit down, most conversations that you have with Muslims are not going to be on the level where, um, there's going to be a major difference between a presuppositionalist and an evidentialist. And the reason for that is not because our approaches are really just the same thing. It's because of the massive language barrier and the massive amount of ignorance that the Muslim has about what it is we're saying in the first place. In other words, you spend most of your time correcting misapprehensions so you can get a basic message communicated. But in those situations where you can really get into a meaningful conversation, uh, then, yeah, you're going to be uh, dealing with the consistencies of the two positions, and that's where you provide the internal critique. So it's not you're, – you're not presenting a transcendental argument because they already accept the existence of a creator god – but you are seeking to demonstrate that given their rejection of the divine revelation of that God in Jesus Christ, this creates an incoherence um, that does not match up. And it's interesting over the years, I know I haven't been doing it as much recently, but over the years I've commented many times on this program 
uh, about the reality that um, in that as I listen to Muslims talking about the heretical movements within their own um, faith, at least what they consider to be heretical movements in their own faith, very often it is the um, natural desire for them to fill in what has been taken from them by their rejection of who Jesus was prophetically. So in other words, Muhammad ends up taking the place of Jesus. Muhammad ends up, uh, some Muslims end up celebrating Muhammad's birthday, and uh, Muhammad uh, in the in the Hadith ends up being a mediator, and uh, the, the uh, Sufis uh, go toward the charismatic side of things because there is a spiritual nature to man that simply isn't fulfilled um, by uh, a, a worshiping a monad. Um, when you think about it, when you think about the role of the Holy Spirit, there is a, um, a really important extension. God is, is bringing us to himself. God is enabling our worship. Uh, that there's that incredible text I'm not sure anyone's ever fully figured out in, in Romans 8. He intercedes with us. He intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. I mean, there is a truly supernatural and personal aspect of of what happens in worship that we are often not focused upon and should be, um, but but we're often not. Part of that's because I'll be honest with you. You've heard if you've listened very long, you've heard me say this. Most evangelical Christians do not worship as Trinitarians. They worship as, as monotheists, but they don't worship as Trinitarians. Mm-hmm. And right. that tremendously diminishes, I think, the, the, the depth of our, of our worship. Um, but so anyway, uh, I wandered off there. <laughs> uh, but so, so yeah, it, 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 it obviously is going to look different than when you're talking with an atheist. Um, right. But I'm still very sensitive to not be putting the Muslim in the position of judging God either. But, but the right. thing is, they're, okay. not, they're not tending to want to do that to begin with. So, so presuppositionalism is not this, you know, this cookie cutter, you, you use this one argument and everybody comes out the other end as a Christian type thing. Um, and it, it does, however, influence how you're thinking about the, how you're going to provide the internal critique to a system that uses that that says our our law and our gospel are revelations from God and that there's one true God so how do you how do you deal with that and how do you you know where where do you draw the line i mean uh, how about oneness uh, now you now you've got someone has the exact same canon uh, and now you're now you're talking about is is presuppositionalism something that you apply to heresies because most of the early church believed uh, most of the early church, most of the early Christians after the rise of Islam that encountered Islam viewed it as a Christian heresy, not as a totally mm-hmm. separate religion. So what does that do when you're dealing with heresy? I think that'd be, I think honestly, that would be a really, really, really good book for an up and coming presuppositionalist uh, to, uh, to write. Um, some of us are getting too old for this type of thing, but um, I think uh, maybe there might be some listening to the audience going, "Huh, yeah, exactly." Because if you if you if you can clarify the line uh, between what is a completely another religion and heresy within the faith, 
then that's going to really, I think, shed some light on exactly how a presuppositionist needs to be consistent in the application along those lines, too. So, man, I have gone for nearly an hour on four calls. This is ridiculous. I am the wordiest person on the planet. I'm try- I try to do it quickly, and what do I do? I sit here talking forever. I'm sorry, what were you saying? <laughs> uh, would you recommend any reading? Uh, so I, I read Bonson. I have on the schedule this year, Frame, Oliphant, and uh, Van Til. But it, but it seems like, from these readings, it seems like that presuppositionalism is mainly for the atheist. Well, Is there any book out there that would be kind of more, maybe I'm just misreading uh, what I've been reading, but... I, I know one that would explain more apologetics. Well, Oliphant, yeah, Oliphant does have a chapter on on the issue of Islam, and I'd like to sit down and talk with him about it sometime because I wasn't. Ex- I went, okay, I see what you're saying, but how many Muslims have you talked to? <laughs> was sort of was sort Correct. of the the thought process that I had at that particular point in time. Um, so you'll you'll. You'll get a sense uh, of of the different differing emphases between all of those uh, individuals, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that that's that's actually a good thing because it can help to clarify stuff. But right now, I wouldn't know what to direct. You've got all the right names, you've got all the right books. Uh, I don't know of one that goes into that particular area though to any particular depth. Okay. Um, so okay. I probably couldn't recommend anything more beyond that. So all right. Well, yeah. Thanks. You've been a huge encouragement to get me to read the. Uh, well, you got pl- you got plenty you got plenty of time to do it. You're in California. Uh, are, you know. Yeah, I've been reading four hours a day. So, <laughs> uh, it's crazy, but it's awesome. I've never read the Church Fathers, and I, my mind is blown. So. Well, yeah. That. Now that's that's really interesting because when you said you were reading, um, uh, you know, the, the Antonicene Fathers, um, I've obviously recommended that, but I hope I also provided enough context that. A lot of people pick that up and expect to be reading R.C. Sproul. You're, you're not reading R.C. Sproul. Um, no, it's very hard to read. It's, it's difficult, and part of that is the context. Is is we yeah. even when you read the preface materials, which is often very very useful, mm-hmm. there is an assumption, especially on scholars who do that kind of stuff, that the people reading will already know a lot about Roman culture, Greek culture. Stuff like that, and most people don't, and it, it ends up yeah. being a real challenge. Yeah, no choice about it. I had to set aside Irenaeus after the first book, so I was just so lost yeah. on what he— And I was listening to you at the same time, and I, was, I had to set it aside because I was just so lost on what he was talking about. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's—yeah. Well, especially if, if, if you're talking about against heresies? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's—it's not easy to read uh, once no. you— but the reality is Irenaeus's work on Gnosticism was our primary source for a long time. And then when Nag Hammadi was discovered, lo and behold, he was pretty spot on. He, I mean, you, I mean he's faulted by people for, uh, you know, condemning them as heretics and blah, blah, well, duh. Um, but it's, but he was, he, he did a good job in representing what the other side said, which is, which is encouraging. But anyways, yeah. he, all right, Jacob, thanks for your phone call today. Thank you. All right. God bless. Bye-bye. Well, that was cool. Did you write those all down? Oh, okay. Well, I was about to close the screen, so um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, yes, I, I did. Uh, yes, I, and I saw that one of the topics that I, I need to put up there is riches on Chinese drugs. Um, so, so I'll, I'll, 
I'll try to put that in there, and uh, people will people will make memes, and uh, lots of weird stuff's going to happen. Um, so, so there you go. Um, apple cider vinegar. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. Love that stuff. Hey, look. I um, real quickly before I jump back into what I was saying, I got word last night. I'm really bummed. They moved the triple. Um, yep. Uh, I had signed up for the double-triple bypass. It was the first time they were going to be offering it. Uh, wait a minute. <laughs> I need to explain that. That one race, uh, well, it's not technically a race, but it is for those of us that ride it. Um, I, I don't do much in the way of vacations, but I do leave in July. And I preach at churches, and I've done debates, and, and I it's a working vacation type thing. But my sanity, you know, you know, people think that I just sit around reading books all day and, and writing, and it's just not the case. Um, I've already been on bike two hours today. I burned 1,509 calories doing that. Um, I, was, I was listening. I was studying uh, while, while doing that. But that's a real important part of who I am. I think it keeps me from blowing up and getting um, like Arthur W. Pink and hating everybody. <laughs> I think if he had ridden a bike, he probably would have been better off toward the end. But anyway, I, I go up to Colorado. I started going to Colorado in 2011. Um, it's, it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I do high altitude riding up there. And one of the things I've been doing for years and years is called the triple bypass. And for a number of years, I did the double triple bypass, which in two days is 240 miles on bike with 21,000 feet of climbing all at altitudes between 7,500 and 12,000 feet above sea level. So it's intense. Uh, and you remember, you know, I, for years I've stayed with the same family up there uh, doing the dividing lines from the basement down there. That's unfortunately not something we're going to be able to continue doing in the future, but it was a great to have that opportunity while, while we did. Well, uh, they hadn't offered the double, double triple for years, and that's the hardest thing I can do. Uh, it's literally the hardest thing you can do. And I, I think when you train yourself to do something that's extremely, extremely hard, it, it makes you better for other things uh, that, you're, that you're doing in life. Unfortunately, they've now moved it to September. In fact, I think uh, it's smack dab in the middle of the cruise. And by the way, uh, I spoke with uh, the folks, and uh, next, we're supposed to do a conference call next week. Still looking at an 80% chance uh, that the cruise will go off, uh, that we will be able to do it. Um, I don't know about you, but for those of you who are already signed up, um, we better make this happen because I'm not so certain if this doesn't happen this year, that it'll ever happen again. I mean, seriously. Um, if you want to see some of these places, at, le- you know, at least I've been there once. But you saw how fast Israel shut down. And I'm, I'm concerned about the, the future of our being able to travel as freely as we have in the past. So I really hope it happens, because I can tell you right now, uh, that, that goes into October. There will be an October surprise. There will be. I, I can pretty much guarantee that. There's going to be an October surprise. I don't know what the nature of it's going to be. But there will be an October surprise. And if you don't know what an October surprise is, you're too young to have been through too many presidential elections. Um, 
Now, of course, our October surprise may have been in February, um, and it's just a continue, continuation of all that mess. But, but anyways, um, so I, I won't be able to do it in September, uh, and I'm really, really, really royally uh, bummed about that. Um, I'm hoping my other rides later, because uh, Jason Lyle and I are supposed to be doing a conference in Colorado Springs uh, right toward the end of July, early August. <clears throat> and so that would coincide with um, what's called the Copper Triangle and the Bob Cook. Um, they're only a week apart toward the end. And yeah, they're insane high altitude craziness too. So, so uh, I'm looking at going up to Utah instead. And I just, I let Jason know last night. So we're going to start talking about um, what I can do. Um, nope. But there are some, there are some rides that I have done uh, out of Salt Lake up to what's called Guardsman Pass. That's 9,550 feet above sea level. And up to the Alta Ski Resort. Um, that if you do the one, then the other, and then that one again, would be almost 13,000 feet of climbing in one day. And if I did that two days in a row, that would be very much as gut-killing as, um, as a double. So um, I've got to have something like that to be working toward. Um, I'm thinking about going outside tomorrow to do a metric century. It's a 100-kilometer bike ride. That means i got to get up no later than three o'clock in the morning. And you've got to have a reason to get up at three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. Otherwise the, the, the body, which is fast moving towards 60 years of age goes, go back to sleep. You idiot. Uh, you got to have the other voice that goes, Nope, you're not going to get up that mountain if you don't get out there and get this done. So yeah, that's, um, that's what's going on there. So I'm bummed about, uh, about the canceling of that. I was really, really, really concerned about that, but we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, but I'm really hoping, really, really, really hoping that we will be able to uh, to do the cruise. Uh, like I said, top of the hour, uh, in an hour and a half from now, I will be on um, uh, Iron Sharpens Iron uh, with Chris Arnson. And then next Thursday evening, so a week ago last night, uh, Emilio Ramos and I, are going to uh, uh, Red Grace Media. We're going to. I'm going to be live with Emilio, and um, the only time I've been to Israel was with Emilio, um, and so um, so he can tell you about climbing Masada and uh, and there's lots of things that Emilio could tell you about, but there's lots of things I can tell you about Emilio too. That's how <laughs> assured mutual destruction. <laughs> It's how, it's how Russia and the United States kept the world safe uh, in the 1960s, as we knew there wouldn't be anything but smoking ruins the other one left. Um, so that's how, you, that's how you do that, too. Anyway, uh, so I'm going to be on with Emilio uh, next Thursday evening, so put that on your, uh, on your calendar as well. We're going to be talking about textual critical issues, and um, so we'll be, uh, we'll be doing that. Now, make sure I do not close that screen so that I uh, don't lose that stuff. Now... Um, yesterday, um, I presented you with some, uh, some information. Um, I, 
and I have taken I, I put on I put the scan on Facebook. I took a picture with my phone, the page on Facebook. I will try to get that. I will try to add that to yesterday's blog article when I'm blogging today's. I I jetted out of <laughs> I told y'all that I had a perishable thing coming. I should have known that given how late it was, two weeks late, it, it was already toast. But it was delivered at like 12.30. I didn't get home to like 4.30. So four hours sitting on a porch in Phoenix at 105 degrees. <laughs> Have you ever seen a nice big plastic thing of dark chocolate covered almonds when it's slush? <laughs> I mean, you can literally go like this and it just it just slushes, slushes back and forth in the... Oh, it's, it's very disgusting looking, actually. Um, but Tastes fine, <laughs> just spoon, and it's um, yeah, it's it's not it's not difficult. Are you looking up the picture? Oh, he's looking at the picture. I took a picture of it um, because I got a spoon out, and you know, you just got to you know find an almond, and there'll be plenty of chocolate uh, still on it. Um, I stuck it in the refrigerator, and then I realized, well, that's just going to make it a hard mass. I've been, I've actually been sitting around going, well, how do I make like? Almond chocolate brittle out of this, or something like that. Do I, do I, do I get out a, a cookie pan and and let it sit outside? Yeah, there it is. There's. <laughs> I didn't have to rush yesterday. In other words, <laughs> I did not have to rush because that's what came out of the box. Um, I ordered it when it was still cool. We did not have a spring this year. Remember? We were sitting out on the porches. It was beautiful at night. It was in the 70s. That's when I ordered it. And it took so long because of all the silliness with, with stuff um, that we, we just went straight into the 90s. We had like three days in the 90s and pff, straight up to 107. Uh, I've seen 109 on my, uh, on my car. Uh, actually, at home, we saw, I saw 110.6 at home. Uh, a couple days ago, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's summer, and so <laughs> that's what was left. That's what's still sitting there at home. But yeah, I, I maybe a cookie sheet that was sort of that'd be interesting. I'm, I'm not sure how that all work, but anyway. So you're just talking a lot today. Yes. So yesterday uh, we uh, we looked at uh, a certain quotation from uh, Wilson's dissertation. Which reads, for Augustine, comma, quote, to become a Manichae was to depart little if at all from being a Christian, end quote. And then I read you where that came from, and we discovered that it was badly misrepresenting Augustine. And being used in such a way, I have, I have made the statement, and, and I stand by the statement, that it is, it is very plain to me um, that... Um, even and, and this is this is simply a place where we have to say okay, um, we're in disagreement on this. But where it is plain to me that Dr. Wilson went into this study with a fixed idea, and then dug up what he needed to find um, to substantiate that. Uh, that is my conclusion. I think I will be able to substantiate that very very clearly from the data, and I think that that data did, in fact, uh, substantiate that rather rather well. Um, so I want to go back. Um, there are a couple things I have on my list uh, in, in looking at the dissertation here. One was um, I want to work through – well, let, let me just let, – let me just, 
back up a second. What would be most useful for you as the audience? And what would be most useful for you in the audience in two ways? One, we didn't start this. This dissertation was being presented as the most scholarly, insightful, important work on Augustine ever done. No one else had ever seen what Ken Wilson had discovered. And it is demonstrative of uh, the reality that if you're Reformed, you're really nothing more than a lackey for the Manichaeans in the modern world. That's what we were being told at the start, right? Yes. The, the word comes to mind, it, the word is smoking gun. It was presented as the smoking oh, gun yeah. against Calvinism. Oh, yeah. There is, there, there, you know, this, was, this book first started circulating, and then, hey, if you haven't, if you can't, James White can't deal with this. This is it. This is so far beyond him, he can't touch it. Well, all right. I, I'll admit, I'll take a challenge. Um, you know, I think I was probably one of the first people to read Bart Ehrman's uh, doctoral dissertation before debating him. Uh, I've read a lot of doctoral dissertations, and I'm working on one myself, and so I know what's required. And in fact, one of the things I'm thinking about doing is I'm working on a certain section of mine. My, mine isn't going very fast right now for one simple reason, um, and COVID has not helped with this. Um, I... My data set for my dissertation work in examining P45 will increase by 55% when Mark is released from the people working on CBGM and Mark in Munster. It's already done. I was told that a year and a half ago when I went to Munster, that Mark was done. It was just a matter of getting it published, getting it online. Um, COVID has not helped (laughs) with any of this stuff. Uh, obviously, especially in Germany. I mean, uh, we're, we're complaining about the lockdown in Arizona. We got it really good. I mean, I'll be honest. We, we joke with you folks in California. I honestly do feel for you because we really haven't been locked down here. Um, yeah, there's, I can't, we, we've been locked down in the sense that um, I've been going to certain restaurants to try to help keep them alive um so i you know I, I pick up my order and and i mean this one restaurant you know which one i'm talking about i just call and it's like hey scott hey james I'll, i'm putting it in thanks you know and you go by and they they even i always put the same tip in about 35 percent um they just automatically just bill me that now <laughs> so i don't have to write it in it's just all i gotta do is thanks see you later talk to you later bye you know um so I'm just trying to help them in that way. Uh, to, but it's not like when I'm driving down the road, the last thought in my mind is that the, there's going to be flashing lights behind me and a cop's going to pull me over. What are you doing out? It's just, that's not Arizona. That's, that's, even here in Phoenix, that's not Arizona. Um, people in other places, it is, most definitely. I get it. I mean, man, that poor chick in Canada. Ah, oh, on, the, on the May 4th, in a stormtrooper outfit, and people are calling nine one one because she's got a blaster. Oh my goodness, the level of stupidity on the part of everybody—not her, but everybody. Oh, don't even get me started on that. I'm sorry. Anyway, how did I get into this? Anyways, so that's why my things have been 
slow down is when your data sets can, in, can increase by 55% tomorrow. Because it could, all of a sudden, I might see the announcement. It's now available. And man, talk about ordering something fast. Um, that, that's going cha- to... Com- when that happens, I'm just going to tell everybody right now, um, I'm going to have to prioritize very, very, very strongly. And there's good, there may be some of you going, oh, you didn't finish doing this. You yeah, that's right. That's right, because, you know, but I'm still working on other stuff, and I've really thought about putting out um, a section of the work that I'm doing and saying, I'll tell you what, let's make this fair. I will provide this to Dr. Wilson and let Dr. Wilson critique my work on P45 um, utilizing CBGM. Um, technology in regards that would specifically be in the book of Acts because that's all we've got with P45 and CBGM is Acts. Mark will have, will have it as well. That's why it's really important. John would have it as well, but only in John 10, 11. Well, there's one verse in chapter four, chapter five. Well, a couple verses, but almost nothing there. Um, and eventually Matthew and, and, and Luke, but don't know when they're going to be coming out. Uh, so there would be other stuff, but make it fair, I suppose. But it also, I think, would illustrate a very major difference in how you approach doing scholarship. A very major difference. It really does. But I'll do it. Uh, I would have absolutely no qualms about doing that at all. Um, so I was thinking about that. So, like I said... When I when we're going through this stuff, I want to benefit a number of people, but this audience is filled with people who have interest in reform theology, interest in textual criticism, interest in church history, interest in theology in general. Um, you want to be able to respond when people say, "Ah, reform theology is nothing but Manichaeism," um, but at the same time. I want to give enough background on these things that you're learning more about church history as well, because this is going to be so useful in dealing with Mormonism and Islam. I want the, the study to be more than just demonstrating that this one theory is utterly indefensible, because it is. I want it to be so much more edifying to a much broader audience than that. Um, so to do that, what do we need to focus upon? Do we need to examine every single page of 300 some odd, you know, uh, 350 some odd pages? Uh, really, actual text is probably more like 280, something along those lines. Uh, when you get when you get all into it, uh, is that what we need to do, or is there a uh, briefer way of doing that that would be more effective? Because it would focus in upon that. So as I as I look at the dissertation, obviously, its discussion of the backgrounds has to be dealt with because here's here's the backgrounds that are listed. Um, you've got Gnosticism, Stoicism, Cicero or Cicero, depending on how you pronounce it, Judaism, and thankfully the ancient First Temple period Tanakh, uh, Second Temple period and Apocrypha the Qumran sect, uh, Philo, and li- rabbinic literature. 
that at least is a meaningful um that's a meaningful breakdown of what you would have to look at that would be relevant at this at this point it's meaningful i don't know that he consistently follows that because as we see later on he talks about jews believe this and it's like well, which one you, you know we we already pointed that out then after judaism neoplatonism uh so ptolemy and other people. um and Manichaeism, which we've already started doing some work on. Um, you've probably already picked up most of what you need on, on, on a Manichaeism. Then we already started looking at Chapter 2, Traditional Free Choice Christian Authors um, from uh, 95 to 215. And why 215? Well, I'm not sure why I broke exactly there, but once you get in the middle of the 3rd century there, you, Manny starts coming along. Uh, so maybe, you know, but, so we already looked at Clement. Uh, we looked at the Epistle of Diognetius, Epistle 2 Diognetus, sorry. Um, and this is where he's going through, and I don't know that I'm going to have time to do this. It, there would be value in looking at this because one of the primary arguments that he makes is there is this absolute unanimity. Everybody believes the same thing. And what I have said from the beginning was, this was not the subject of debate at this time in church history. You don't find entire books on this topic. The, the energy is on other subjects, and there are many people who have taught church history for years that have said the exact same thing. Um, so while it would be it was useful to look at like how he handled Clement and completely ignored, with one exception, the evidence there that very plainly uh, would point the other direction. Um, for a lot of this, it would be just an ex- extensive investment of time. Then you have other, uh, chapter 3, traditional free choice, Christian authors from 216 to 430. Then you've got Augustine's works. And so you're going through Augustine's works all the way through uh, sermons and letters of chapter 9. And part of the argument there is, did Augustine go back and edit and change later books? And that's already, that, that's already a given. People already admit that he did that because he said he did that. But did he did it? Did, did he did it? <laughs> did he do that without telling us? On, on other in other instances is is what is addressed there and that's not of great interest uh, import to me but chapter 10 is important and that is Augustine's exegesis of scripture and that's what we are starting to look at um, because that's where I really really feel that there is an incredible bias uh, demonstrated uh, by uh, by dr. Wilson in his handling of, of Augustine. Um, but then, of course, you've got the conclusion. The conclusion lays all this stuff out, and that's really where you then have what comes into what's going to impact most people. Most people aren't going to read this. Most people are reading this. Well, where did this come up with the incredible conclusions it comes up with, that if you're a Reformed Christian, you're actually a Manichaean, and, and that, that your beliefs on this subject of determinism actually came from Manny, from, from, from Manny and not from reading 
the institutes and following the exegesis that Calvin provides of key texts in Hebrew or Greek and things like that. It's actually all from Manny. Um, that's what you get into in the conclusion. So, so what has to be established by this dissertation is a meaningful definition of the dupied concept. When I say meaningful, that means it, it can't be an artificial construct that is simply meant to connect things that have no meaningful connection in history or real life, in logic. Um, anybody can come up with a way to connect disparate things together. The reality is, is it something that is drawn from the text or is it something that is crammed into the text? That's the key issue. And it is painfully obvious that no matter how great Augustine's influence is upon Calvin, for example, that from Calvin onward, there has been tremendous work done in demonstrating the biblical foundations of Reformed theology and trying to dismiss that by simply saying, yeah, well, but the early church. Um, and we already have addressed this, but I, I want to make sure everyone does understand that issue of the early church. Seems to me that in, in, in the interview and in some of the statements that are made, being made, that, that the early centuries become the exegetical lens through which everything else is supposed to be viewed. They don't do that in their, own, in their wider theology, but on this subject, you're supposed to. There's an inconsistency there, major inconsistency there. So, um, if we demonstrate what the historical context was, and that it that people were not cranking books out in every generation on the subject of foreknowledge and divine election and predestination, um, and then eventually, I do want to have at least some attention paid to the issue of. The, the amazing comments made, especially in the popularized book, about Augustine and the doctrine of baptism, Augustine and the doctrine of faith as a gift, um, and asserting that this somehow is derived from Manichaeism and stuff like this, um, when there were all sorts of people before Augustine who had understood Ephesians 2 in that way. Um, that kind of stuff we, will be useful because it gets us into exegesis. It gets us into all sorts of issues along those lines as well. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the sort of the plan of attack uh, to, to work through this stuff. So while it would be more fun for me, uh, well, for example, let me back up a second. When you look at chapter 10, it's useful because you can see... Um, Augustine's exegesis of Scripture in a, the tractate on the Gospel of John, uh, in his uh, narrations of the Psalms, and then section D, mistranslations that created doctrine. Mistranslations. And he includes Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. That'll be fun to work through. Um, that's sort of in our wheelhouse, shall we say? Uh, yes, I've already looked at it. Uh, and then, um, uh, initium fide, the, the, the beginning of faith, 
other mistranslations, First uh, Timothy two four, First John two two. Does any of this sound familiar? Romans nine through eleven, Philippians two thirteen. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll want to look at all those because what you have here is Dr. Wilson um, arguing against Augustine in these texts, but he's arguing from the modern provisionalist standpoint and the anti-lordship form of modern evangelicalism, which, again, I don't know how that doesn't get challenged at Oxford, but hey, um, what can I say? And then, like I said, the conclusion is really important uh, because it really lays everything out, especially as stuff is being used um, as is being used today. So, and and, be, and application being made. But as I said, I was going through. I had gone through page thirty six, um, and so I wanted to pick up at that point. Um, and I'm just trying to remember here where I stopped, and I've only got a few minutes. Um, hmm. At the bottom of page 36, efforts to rescue the Qumranites from divine unilateral predetermination of individuals, eternal destinies. Individuals, it's, it's interesting. Uh, prove insuperable due to their belief in God's direct control over every thought, emotion, and action within irreparably damaged human worms. I remember scripture uses worm of man many times, uh, but this is meant to communicate something. Considering the parallels in Jewish heritage, baptismal emphases, astrology, services held facing the sun, and extended light-dark motifs, Qumran and Manichaeism may have shared not only a common Weltanschauung, worldview, but a common quella source in ancient Indo-Mesopotamian religion. Hmm. So, um, baptismal emphases, astrology and services held facing the sun... Light-dark motifs, Qumran and Manichaeism may have shared not only a common Veltanchang, but a common quella in ancient Indo-Mesopotamian religion. Ancient authors from Rodotus to Porphyry affirm Zoroaster's Magians, living throughout the Mediterranean, had similar traditions to later Manichaeans with astrological interests and seeing hymns while abstaining from meat, alcohol, and sexual intercourse. Well, that's certainly a part of Manichaeism, but it's a part of a large number of man's religions. Large number of man's religions. Uh, in all of these religions, persons are divinely created for the purpose of eternal damnation or blessing. That simply isn't true. We've already demonstrated that. The Manichaean God never created a man to begin with. So how can you even make this statement? In all of these religions, persons are divinely created for the purpose of eternal damnation or blessing. How, how, put yourself in a, in a Manichaean's shoes who lives in Mesopotamia, who isn't in the Roman Empire, around the time of Mani, one of his original followers. Well, they've even understood what you're talking about. They don't have a creator God. They have equal forces of light and darkness. 
So what is damnation or blessing? Blessing is to have the light that is trapped inside your body um, released back into the realm of light. But you were, you, your body came into existence, your race came into existence because of demons mating who were trying to keep the light trapped in darkness. And once you have that understanding of what's really going on, then you start to see the artificial connectivity that is being created here. You're creating an artificial connection to promote a theory, to promote an idea. Most folks look at Manichaeism and go, if there is any similarity in language, any, any similarity in, you know, they have the elect, there is no logical or rational connection to the concept of the elect within Christianity. Because the world view of the two is so completely different that you can't make the categories mesh at all. So, the, one of the problems in studying in, 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 in the theories of religion in our universities is that they view religions as if they are made of, if, they are, if they're tinker toy religions. Some of you don't know what a tinker toy is. I suppose I should say Lego religions. Uh, most people know Lego. Most people are tinker toy. May still exist. I don't know. Uh, but that was my youth. Um, so you could take, when I had tinker toys, or I never got into Legos, but you can take Legos and you get a big box and you put it on the floor and there's all these different shapes and stuff and you can put them together in various and sundry different ways. That's how scholarship looks at religion. And you can just reconstruct things. And, and so if I, make, if I make a tank out of my Legos and I make a plane out of my Legos... And there are blue Legos in the plane and blue Legos in the tank. They're obviously related. Well, I suppose they are related amongst Legos. They were made at the Lego factory. It's probably more than one Lego factory. I don't know. But is there really any conceptual connection just because a, there's a blue Lego in a tank and a blue Lego in a plane? Is, is, that, is that a meaningful connection? Well, they're both blue, they look alike, but one's in a tank and one's in a plane. Or maybe one's in a plane and maybe I made those both weapons, but one's in a plane and one's in a dinosaur. Is there really a connection? Not one that, not one that carries information or meaning. Uh, that's, uh, that's the issue. So th the point is, it talks about singing hymns. Yeah, well, staying from me. Well, that's, uh, that's never been heard of before. Uh, that's... How many religions could we, could we trace that to? Uh, I mean, I'll bet you anything that I could study contemporary South American, Mayan, um, Mayans came later, um, Olmec and Toltec. Yeah, Olmec and Toltec, those would be contemporary. South American, Central American religions. And find fasting, baptisms, 
astrology, um, facing of the sun for, for all sorts, must come from the same thing. Somebody, hey, somebody must have gone across the ocean. The Book of Mormon's true after all. Hey, see how this works? Lego history. Don't want to go there. Um, that's not what serious people do, but you can do it. it it's, it's very common to do this stuff. It, it's how you get books published, and it's, it's how you come up with your thing. And yeah, so. Um, the Indo-Mesopotamian dogma of total inability of free will... Coupled with a totalitarian providence, absolute micromanagement necessitated a divinely infused radical grace to invade the to invade the human heart, mind or heart for salvation. I don't think almost anybody in the ancient world would have any idea what in the world he was babbling about at that point. I really don't. I really don't. The Indo-Mesopotamian dogma of total inability of free will. Why? Well, it depends on which religion you're talking about. If you want to talk about some of the background religions to Manichaeism, as long as you've got strict dualism, none of this has anything to do with a meaningful concept of creation of mankind, the will of man as a man as even a morally relevant thing. Because if 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 all you've got the father of light doing is emanating things to defend the kingdom against the invasion of darkness. And then you got demons mating and mankind comes out of that. Please, Dr. Wilson, there is no connection to what we're saying at that point. Can you not see that? Can you not see that? It's obvious, isn't it? That's the, 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 the chasm is too wide to be able to bridge at this particular point in time. So you're utilizing anachronistically and inaccurately terminology that would have one meaning over there and have one meaning there, have a different meaning over there, and then bring this all together. A totalitarian providence? How do you get that? What do you mean a totalitarian providence? All that God and Manichaeanism does, or even Gnosticism does, is emanate stuff. There's no, there's no decree. There is no absolute micromanagement. After the first war in Manichaeism, do you think that the that there was like, okay, now I'm in control of the situation, so the next thing we're going to do is this, and he's going to do that because I'm micromanaging. No! They'd be going, what are you talking about? They would have no earthy idea. No way of understanding what in the world is being said. Well, I would like to continue on. Uh, I'm now on page 37. <laughs> We, we got through an entire paragraph. Uh, I'd like to continue on, but like I said, I've got uh, Iron Sharpens Iron coming up in an hour, and there's this little thing called lunch uh, that needs to be done between now and then, or I'm going to be babbling by the time... I might be babbling by the time we're done with the other one. Anyways. Um, but we will press on with this. Thank you very much for listening all this week. Uh, we have to keep doing lots of programs to keep those of you in leftist states company uh, as you are locked down. Uh, by your leftist governors, uh, who I hope you remember in about 180 days, you have the opportunity of getting rid of them. Because <laughs> that's going to be important. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, of course, you may be on a different election schedule, but anyways. Uh, lots of stuff going on. We will, Lord willing, not be back on Monday. 
Um, so we'll be back on Tuesday uh, on the program. We will see you then. God bless.